You're listening to a Red Bull podcast. I'm Al Grieg, and this is Red Bull's If These Walls Could Talk, a podcast about our favourite parties and the people and places that made them. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record and honour their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respect to their elders past and present. This season, we're hearing the stories of some of Australia's best music festivals from the people behind them. And in this episode, we're getting to know the Bushdorf. My name is Tara Medina, and I'm a co-founder, director of Strawberry Fields Festival. You cross over the Murray River, and you're in the, the very cute little quiet town of Tokemore, and you drive about 10 minutes down the road, and the scenery is very typical Australiana, you know, there's galahs flying across the road, there's like red river gums everywhere, and you come off a tree-lined freeway into this paddock. You follow that sort of dusty track in and you are on over a kilometre of Murray River frontage with a really beautiful ghost gum forest fringing along it. So. Other than when you're at your campsite, you never really feel like you're on a farm. You're very much in the bush and, and in that really idyllic um, sort of Southeast Australian, like dry bush. Strawberry Fields is one of Australia's best known bush doofs. Of all the festivals that we're visiting in this podcast series, I have to admit I've never actually been to a bush doof. It's a scene I've never really tapped into, but I'm so curious to know what sets it apart from other Australian festivals set out in nature. You know, I think Bushdorf is a very loaded term <laughs> in the 2020s. If you said Bushdorf in the early 2000s, it was pretty clear and linear what that meant. It meant psychedelic trance music. It meant psychedelic art in a bush setting. And it was, you know, anti-establishment. It was a rave scene. Did you go to many bush doofs growing up before you started Strawberry Fields? Yeah, I did. I mean, they were the first real, like, music events that I went to. Like, I grew up overseas for most of my life and being a foreigner in other countries, there's not a huge amount of a gig scene that you can go to as a young person other than foreign language music. So when I came to Australia when I was, like, 16, it was incredibly liberating to go to things like that. Tara started Strawberry Fields with a couple of mates when she was just 19. So what was the vibe like at this kind of festival back in the day? Chaotic. (laughs) Chaotic is the way I would ultimately sum it up. It was very much anti-establishment. They would be disorganised. And ultimately, it was a really mixed crowd. They weren't large events. They used to be sort of I mean, even quite a lot of international travellers for, for the early days of, of those scenes. I mean, like Rainbow Serpent and, and Earth Core in the early 2000s would attract a really large contingent of Japanese, South American, Israeli people. These days, it's pretty hard to pull off an underground festival. Everything is on social media and word spreads super quick. But before all this, when Tara was 16 and looking for music experiences, finding out where the good ones were was totally different. Oh my God, I wish it was still like that sometimes. So it would usually, the most common way was flyers. 
you'd either get a flyer at another party that you went to or a friend would give you a flyer or you'd go to a record store or a clothing store and there would be flyers like on the, the sill of the window and you'd check them out. And some of the parties on the flyer would be a phone number and you'd call the phone number to find out where it was the day before or the morning of. You'd call the number, they'd say, go to this, go to this farm, go to this address. And it was really only, like Facebook was really only becoming a thing maybe right before our first event. It sort of started to become a thing 2010 for promoters. Social media didn't just change how people found out about Bushtoofs. It opened festivals up to much bigger audiences. Tara says the whole experience of a doof has changed since Strawberry Fields has been running. But you look at some events that are called Bushtoofs today and they are sort of the antithesis of that. Not only has a, a much more diverse range of music been introduced, both different kinds of electronic music and live music, but also the the demographics have changed significantly. Like it was it was very much a hippie counterculture anti-establishment crowd in the early days of the rave scene, and now you see sort of the full spectrum of Collins Street corporate workers, university students, gym junkies, and everyone in between. What do you think's fueled that change? I think human beings have an innate desire for novelty. The heyday of festivals 15 years ago was very much focused on commercial events like the Big Day Out or Summer Days, urban-based sort of big bang, huge lineup shows. But I think people started to want more of an experience than something that was so short, sharp and expensive. <laughs> and the festival experience, like you have to travel a considerable distance from home, you're going to be most likely off-grid. It kind of just offers more space for a, a greater amount of memories than just I was at the Sydney Mind Music Bowl for seven yeah, hours. definitely. And I guess as a program you can kind of do more with that as well. Yeah, it gives us the space to say, oh, I'm just going to put a grand piano next to this tree and see what happens, you know, because <laughs> yeah. it's going to be there for four days. When Strawberry Fields started, it was relatively small. About 700 people danced in the bush for three days. Since then, the festival has grown enormously. In 2019, 10,000 people bought tickets and the four-day festival sold out months in advance. Tara says locking in large international acts isn't what excited her about running the festival. It's often way more interesting to think about who the unknown artists you're going to book are versus who are the headliners. And I think that people have gotten used to considering us more as a holistic event, not just one that's based off the lineup. I mean, this year we sold out in 60 seconds without a lineup, still haven't put out a lineup. So it's just people wanting to come for an experience and having trust that we're going to give it to them. How did you start Strawberry Fields and how old were you? I think we started it by accident and with a lot of naivete. <laughs> um, we were all in our very early 20s, late teens, and liked going to parties and thought, we can do this. <laughs> and uh, a festival that we had gone to once or twice had gone off the calendar and stopped operating. 
But for us, we just said, we're, we're now going to be free that weekend. What are we going to do? Let's just have a party for our friends. And my co-founder, Elliot Rossfield, is a man of, of big dreams. <laughs> and even though we were just really kids, um, he, was, he was like, no, we can do this properly. Like, we can sell tickets. We can promote it. We can get international DJs involved. We can organise a festival. But it was a very challenging first year. Like, we were full of excitement and passion and we got about a thousand people there but we also forgot to organize someone to clean the toilets and the whole stage sort of blew down like 48 hours before we were going to open the gates and there were lots of of really just overlooked fundamentally important areas (laughs) but it was really fun when you look back on a lot of the funnier, sillier decisions you made when you were in your early 20s, you can't just be full of despair. Like, it's all—it's always funny. It was all a learning experience. We did not create a very good reputation for ourselves there. Being incredibly young and inexperienced and naive and probably irresponsible, to be completely honest. They might not have impressed the campground staff, but everyone who went to Strawberry Fields loved it. So they kept going. The next year, they moved to the Barma Forest, deep in the lush bushland on the Victorian side of the Murray River. Again, like very much on the fringe of it's things you would just not get away with today, like convincing park rangers to let us have the festival a couple of days before with some very confusing template downloaded plans from the internet. But I think they just were happy that we were willing to give it a crack. <laughs> Before long, they found a more official venue for the festival nearby, but on the New South Wales side of the Murray River. And they worked with the local community and council to get things set up formally. By that point, we were 23, so we weren't completely... (laughs) We weren't complete idiots. We were still very young and silly, but, you know, we were starting to get a grip on things. Strawberry Fields has moved a few more times to larger properties to cater for bigger crowds. But the festival is always held along the same dusty road by the Murray River, near the town of Tokemul. And Toke, as it's affectionately known, is a pretty tiny town. About 2,000 people live there and a bunch come to check out the festival. We've got over a kilometre of river frontage to the venue. We've had people rock up on houseboats where they've charged 20 bucks a head and guaranteed access to the festival. We've had dairy farmers rock up in their full overalls and gumboots in a tinny just to walk into the middle of the main stage dance floor, take a selfie and then get back in the boat and leave. So the locals love it. But as the festival grew over the years, the organisers have learnt to deal with a heap of challenges. It's the sort of dichotomy of creating a place where we encourage people to be free and to have fun while also respecting other people's ability to do that and taking care of themselves. Chaos is a lot easier to manage in a small community than a large one. The early days of festivals, anyone who's ever run one would agree. (laughs) You have to be really scrappy and resourceful. And when you reach larger capacities, that tension does dissipate somewhat and you can kind of start to pick up projects that have been on your wish list, either from a visual arts perspective or a music perspective. So there's some enablement that comes from having a bigger crowd, but there's also complexity because 
people behave differently in a very anonymous setting. You know, there's famous social experiments that say if there's two people walking down the street and one of them falls over, the other one will say, oh, are you okay? <laughs> but uh, in a street filled with 10,000 people, if one person falls over, no one says anything. So that sort of social responsibility, community feeling that we do care about gets harder. It's not doesn't disappear. It, it gets harder to nurture at a large capacity event. And festivals are really just a microcosm of society. You are essentially a town planner. You've become the government. You're not just organising a rave anymore. From an anti-establishment rave in the bush to creating your own government. Over the years, Tara says she's learnt a lot from other festivals. And a big influence was going to Burning Man, an annual event in Black Rock City, Nevada, built on community and self-expression that essentially becomes like a pop-up city in the desert. Even people at Burning Man, (laughs) you consider what their mindset was when they first started. They were essentially anarchists and they had no reservation in designing the event. It was about giving people the ultimate freedom, the ultimate creative playground. But, you know, 10, 20 years later, you end up becoming the government. (laughs) You create rules and checklists and accreditation levels and zones and schedules. But it is undoubtedly ironic (laughs) because it essentially, in order to enable people to have the level of freedom we want them to have, we have to also introduce some rules and common sacrifices. One of the big things that's changed since Strawberry Fields first started has been reducing how long they program music for. And a key reason for that is safety. We've massively reduced our programming times. We used to be 24 hours a day. We've introduced a really, really significant crowd care program. And it's because you find yourself ultimately designing for the lowest common denominator of behavior. Like at the end of the day, 99% of people are unreal. They have a great time. They are happy and healthy the whole time. They create great memories for friends and strangers alike and they don't cause any trouble. But if 1% of your crowd at a 10,000 person event are troublemakers, that's like 100 people. When Tara started the festival, her main goal was for everyone to have a hell of a good time. She and the other festival organisers were young, so having fun was a big priority. And what's interesting about Strawberry Fields is that as the festival organisers came of age, so too did the festival. This has meant a real value shift in how the festival is run. The focus is on creating an experience that draws people in whatever kind of person you are. And I always say, don't really care anymore who you are when you show up at the gate. It's more about who you are when you leave. We welcome people from the city to enjoy a tranquil location in nature, but a byproduct of that is a huge amount of consumption and waste. It's a really hard conversation to have with people, again, balancing the fact that they're there to have fun. Maybe it's the first holiday they've had all year, maybe they've just finished exams. Maybe it's a special occasion and it's their friend's birthday, or sometimes we've had a few weddings. And they want to go all out, you know? They don't just want to bring good camping stuff and a couple beers. They want to bring couches. They want to bring costumes. They want to bring inflatable unicorns. (laughs) And a lot of that stuff ends up in the bin, you know? 
Some of the things Strawberry Fields has brought in to minimize its environmental footprint are composting toilets, which reduce water consumption by 80%, powering the festival through biodiesel and solar panels for the office. We not only banned single-use plastic cups and whatnot, we actually banned single-use anything. And the whole market runs off a reusable plate cup and bowl system, which had never been done for 10,000 people at a camping festival. So really proud of those initiatives, but there's still so much to do. And it's actually about changing people's mindset about what you need to have a good time and how responsible you are for dealing with what you bring and taking it home. The festival has also worked out ways to minimise its waste and carbon footprint. One thing they've done is organise charter buses to get people to the festival from Melbourne and back home again. This limits the amount of stuff people are able to bring and reduces the petrol from individual cars. They've also introduced low-income ticketing. It came from, like, just seeing structurally in Australia young people being continually, I mean, fucked over, basically. <laughs> and festivals becoming more and more financially inaccessible. And I think that they are genuinely a cultural experience that people deserve access to. And while we can't necessarily afford within the scope of the event to discount everyone's tickets by a fraction, we can afford to carve out a couple hundred tickets and do them drastically cheaper. And I, I think every festival can do that. And if you manage to give 200 people a really fantastic experience, the knock-on effects for that into their lives from that point onward are really worth far more than the 50, 100 bucks you would have made off them. So our viewers, as long as we cover the cost of their attendance, you know, in terms of what we spend on artists and infrastructure and logistics and all that stuff, then allowing a couple hundred people who otherwise wouldn't attend to be there is worth it for the social impact. All these ideas just make a better festival for the people going along and sort of make them leave as better people too. Which I kind of think is the ideal experience. When I think back to my favourite memories playing or partying at festivals, it's the ones that have left me thinking of how much I love the people, the place and the festival itself that stick with me the most. The ones that, even as I'm on my way home, I just can't wait to get back to the next year. Helping people have a really memorable experience, a really memorable, positive experience. And that's really as detailed as it needs to be. I don't care if it's because of music, if it's because of their friends, if it's because they just sat underneath a tree for three days and spoke to the sky. It's just a positive, memorable experience and they should get what they paid for plus plus. I don't know how you're feeling, but having convos like these make me so hyped up to get amongst a crowd or just sit under a tree in some blissful outdoor location and listen to live music. But what happens when the ability to do that is taken away? Next episode, I'll be chatting with Emily Ullman about Isolade, the unique music festival that stepped in and swept us up week after week when the pandemic put a halt to the industry in 2020. I'm Al Grigg. This is If These Walls Could Talk, a Red Bull podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. For more stories from the world of Red Bull, head to redbull.com slash if these walls could talk.